Please rise for the reading of the Holy Scripture. We read today from Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful, trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even that what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I was in the hospital going to visit a friend and uh, the elevator was about to close and I ran up to and slipped in that, uh, the doors just before they closed only to realize there were about 20 people in this elevator. <laughs> and so I wasn't their favorite person at that moment. And as the door shut, we were all in there, arms down, shoulder to shoulder. And every one of them were there for very serious business. And they were there because someone was very sick. And a voice from the back of the elevator said, Good morning. I'm Jimmy Johnson from Parsons, Tennessee. 
<laughs> and it was, it was absolutely wonderful. The whole place erupted into a party. Uh, and there were doctors and nurses, but it took a little man in the back of the room from Parsons, Tennessee, to introduce himself to turn us into a community. And for several floors, we were smiling at each other and shaking hands, introducing and meeting him. And how in the world does one find the courage to do that in that kind of a serious, serious situation? Well, I just wish I had more of that little man in me. I wish I could bring that much light um, into someone else's life by just taking a risk, a small risk, sometimes a big risk, but taking the risk in order to bring a little bit more joy and comfort and light into the lives of one other person, 20 other people on an elevator, on a street corner, walking across campus, any place you go. So, it's worth the risk. The little ones and the big ones. Um, it's a better way to be. Well, hi, I'm Davis Chaplin. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm so glad to be with each of you and how good it is to be among the saints this day. Can you all believe we're one week away from All Saints Day? Uh, next weekend, we'll be gathering and remembering the faces and the names of those who have gone before us into the fullness of the kingdom. And we look forward to what always here at Brentwood is one of the most meaningful worship experiences of the year. Uh, I love the elevator story that Rusty shared with us this morning. For those of you who don't know, uh, Rusty McIntyre, let me introduce him to you. He sits right up on this side at 815 uh, with his wife, Susan. He was our favorite teacher at Lambeth College in Jackson, Tennessee, where he taught philosophy for a number of years before he came then to Vanderbilt to head the department there. He and Susan are a part of our church where there are now three generations of McIntyres, including Cass and Christian, who are in the Sunshine Choir. And the theme of what he just said, the theme of that story sort of dovetails with our, our theme this morning having to do with the word risk. Those of you who know something about the core values of our church know that one of the core values along with the ministry of all believers and being Christ-centered and teachable is is the core value of being a risk taker. The idea that we're called as disciples of Jesus to roll the dice on God, to actually wager our lives in acts of love and, and mercy and justice and reconciliation, not for our benefit, but in order to extend the reign of God through Jesus Christ in the world. There are many of these days, and some of you are here today, who work in the area of what we might call risk management or risk assessment. The purpose of these consultants and these financial planners and insurers is to analyze everything in life that could possibly go wrong. Many of us live by Murphy's Law, and their job is to help us understand how likely 
Our particular organizational plan will work or will fail, what the consequences are, and how tolerable the risk quotient will be within the community. They help us, these risk managers, to identify, to understand, and to minimize the risk. And that's very helpful, but I've noticed the one thing that they cannot do for us is they cannot eliminate risk because life by its nature is pretty risky. I read the other day, statistically speaking, that 450 people every year die in the United States because they fall out of bed. But you got to get some sleep. I read that 6,000 people every year die because they slip and fall in the shower. Although I, for one, personally believe that bathing is worth the risk, and your neighbor before you and behind you also believes that. 3,000 people every year die from choking to death, but you've got to eat. In fact, I saw the other day, if you can believe it, that in coastal climates, in coastal places, that 150 people every year die from being hit over the head from a dropping coconut. So while we're worried about sharks on the surf, coconuts are falling from the sky. If you ask someone for a date, you risk rejection. If you conceive and bear a child, you risk life and death. The truth of the matter is, try as we may, you cannot, we cannot possibly eliminate risk. In fact, there are three kinds of people in the world, risk takers, caretakers, and undertakers. And all three are present with us today. But our text indicates that the biggest risk just may be The biggest risk of all just may be to take no risk at all. In other words, to risk nothing, I think, is to risk everything. Now, the parable of the talents that we've read is familiar to us. And so sometimes, as soon as Jim began reading it, you turn it off because you know this story. Many of you know this story. It's a part of a trilogy in Matthew 25 that concerns the parousia or the second coming, the return of Christ. Following the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, there were many in the first century early church who believed in the immediate return of Jesus. They believed he was coming back immediately, but as the years passed, as a generation or two went by, there were many in the church who were becoming somewhat impatient Some were beginning to wonder if Jesus was going to return at all. And so Matthew, the writer of this gospel, recalls this parable and retells this parable of Jesus as a way of reassuring the church that, in fact, Jesus is going to return and to remind us also of what is expected in between the time during the delay, in between the first and second coming. And so our story begins, verse 14, chapter 25. It's like a CEO who's going on a journey, and just before he departs, he summons his servants and entrusts his property to them. Now, the first thing that I notice is an apparent inequity 
in the distribution of gifts. And so there's something in me, a justice issue, that wonders if this is really fair because they don't all get the same gift. To one is given one talent, to another two, to another five. And so I wonder why this inequity, but it's implied in the Scripture where it says, and he gave to each according to his ability. In other words, the CEO, the boss, knows the capacity of his employees, and it's not all the same. He knows their abilities, their aptitude, their potential. It's also important to note here that a talent is not so much what we think of as being a gift or a grace like playing an instrument or or being a good singer, but in this sense, a talent is a measure of money. It is a measure of weight. And the value of the weight depends upon the metal, whether it's gold or silver or copper. A talent of silver in the first century, for example, was worth 15 years of wages for a blue-collar worker, for a day laborer, 15 years' salary. So whether you get one talent, two talents, or five, this is a colossal sum of capital. And furthermore, what you notice in the story is this capital is not the property of the employees. It belongs to the master. It's also interesting to note that there are absolutely no instructions given by the CEO as to how they're to utilize these gifts, although the implicit expectation is that they will invest, and so they do. The two multi-talented employees went out at once. In other words, there's no procrastination. There's no dawdling here. They go out immediately and double their assets. And we have no idea how they did it. Uh, Maybe they invested in in sheep or or maybe they invested in real estate, in tent making, or, or maybe they bought a line of used camels and opened a camel lot. Nobody knows. But, but it doesn't matter because the point is they took a chance. They did something with their gift. They, they took a risk. And I submit to you that these two multi-talented men lived by this philosophy. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Now, after a long time, the CEO returns and calls them to account and notice that both of these guys receive the same things. They receive commendation and they receive a promotion. Jim read it for us, well done, good job, good and faithful servant, you've done well with a few things, now I'm gonna put you in charge of many things. And so they're rewarded. And the reward for good work is more work. Now, if I'd have been one of those guys, I would have expected a gold watch or or maybe an extended four-week cruise in the Mediterranean or a bonus at least, but all they get is more responsibility, more work. The The reward for good work is more work. And I may be wrong about this, but I think this is why sometimes in our culture that we opt in our work just to get by or we opt for mediocrity or average because the reward for a job well done is a bigger job. I don't know if you've ever gotten to this place or not, but every now and then, I'd like to have the job with the least amount of responsibility. 
Uh, we, we had lunch the other day with our maintenance crew here at the church. It was a wonderful time. They were wonderful disciples, wonderful group of people. And, and every now and then I've thought, I'd like to have a part-time job as a, as a maintenance person in the church. And then I see what they do, and I realize that their job is more difficult in many ways than mine. But sometimes we opt for mediocrity because we know that the reward for good work is greater expectation. I mean, there ought to be a verse in the Bible somewhere that says, to whom much is given, much is required. But the greatest blessing that these two receive is that they enter into the joy of their master. Obedience is its own reward, isn't it? It's their faithfulness, it's their love and their devotion that actually brings joy to God. Leslie Hotzfeld is our executive director here and like a sister to me, and Leslie and I were in Atlanta a couple of days last week at a conference with the 100 church pastors of the largest 100 churches in the Methodist denomination and the executive directors. Oftentimes the pastors would meet in one room and the executive directors would meet in another room where they could talk badly about the senior pastors. And so here we were together and we had a wonderful time. Adam Hamilton convened the meeting and it was just a, it was an incredible time of sharing best practices and prayers and concerns. And on Tuesday night last week, we had a break, and my children who live in Atlanta came over. They fought the rush hour traffic to come to Midtown Atlanta and have dinner with me. It was so good of them to come. In fact, they they even let me pick up the tab, which I thought was very generous of them. And and I have to tell you, it it was worth the whole trip because we sat at this diner in Buckhead, Georgia for two and a half hours. And I listened to these children for whom I'm thankful that we somehow survived the teenage years. I listened to them talk about how they were investing their lives, one in ministry to a church and the other in counseling to people in need. And I have to tell you, listening to my children talking about their ministry was just, it was just pure joy (laughs) to me. And, And I thought to myself, If I feel that way about my children, how must God feel about us when we risk ourselves, when we invest our lives in kingdom work, in a world that so desperately needs it? We enter into his joy and obedience is its own reward. Of course, the ending of this story is troubling Because as it's typically true in any media source, the majority of press is given to the troubled fella, the one-talent guy, who when the boss calls him in to account for what he's done, what has he done? He's taken that incalculable gift and he's found a hiding place. He's gone out in some remote location, found a secure place, dug a hole, and buried his gift. And what's shocking to me, what's really interesting if you know the Middle Eastern culture in the first century is that this third man's response would have been considered the right thing to do. It would have been considered the prudent, practical thing to do because in a world 
in the first century in a Roman culture of corruption and fraud and these high interest rates never happens today, but it did in the first century, the safest bet was to hide the principle, to put it under your mattress, to put your lamp under a bushel, and to bury it. This guy lived by the philosophy, nothing ventured, nothing lost. Unlike the others, when he meets with the boss, there's no commendation, there's no promotion. In fact, he's demoted, and worse, he's excommunicated, he's fired. And there's something very telling in that meeting with the boss in his rationale for his action. When he's asked to account for his gift, why didn't you invest, listen to what he says, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you didn't scatter, so I was, here it is, I was afraid, and so I went and hid the talent in the ground here, you have what is yours, and he gave it back unscathed. Now, what's he doing? He's actually blaming his boss for his own inaction. And I could be wrong here, but I think he has a rather warped view of the master because he doesn't see him as a generous man who gave him an incredible gift. He sees him as a callous, hardcore slave driver who gave him a burden. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy What you see is what you project. His perspective becomes self-fulfilling. It was fear that kept him from risking. And we all understand that. I tell you, you know this. I'll confess to you that I regularly, regularly live between fear and faith. And sometimes I'm sorry to tell you that fear wins out. But while faith leads to risk, fear leads to isolation and to inaction. At that meeting last week in Atlanta, Joe Park, who's a friend of mine and a consultant for us here and across the denomination, Joe is the director of Horizon Stewardship, shared with us last week in Atlanta, they get this, the average giving of a United Methodist in our denomination today in the denomination is now 0.9%. That is less than 1% of our income. Part of this, he explained, is because of the rise in 501c3s in our world, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But he went on to say that about 50% of members of mainline churches give $200 or less to God. And then he said, with the new tax law that's coming, he is predicting that the main lines will see a decrease in contributions of 7.6% next year. And you could feel the whole room get rather silent. But I thought to myself, that's not my church. I don't believe that we invest in God's kingdom merely for a tax benefit. I believe we invest in God out of love and faithfulness and devotion and generosity. 
Anyway, I've gone from preaching to meddling. I don't know if you know it, but I enjoy meddling sometimes. But back to the story, the one talent man didn't lose his gift because he tried and failed. He lost it because he forfeited. He lived by the philosophy, nothing ventured, nothing lost, but it turns out that the CEO lives by this principle, nothing ventured, everything lost. No risk, no gain, everything lost. It was because he decided to play it safe that he lost his gift. The reward is in the risk. You remember Wayne Gretzky, the great Gretzky, the hockey player? He said, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. I love to walk out at Radnor. I love, I've studied the turtles who climb out on these branches in the water together. And I've noticed, though they're very slow, they're very resilient. And I've noticed that turtles only make progress when they stick their neck out. One forfeited in fear and the other in resilience rolled the dice on God. Diane Kutu is the editor of Harvard Business Review. In a book of articles, she writes one chapter on emotional intelligence in which she shares what I think is an incredible, meaningful insight. She says that faithful, resilient people typically possess three characteristics. You ready? Number one, a staunch acceptance of reality, number one. Number two, a deep belief that life is meaningful. And number three, an uncanny ability to improvise. I, I think that's also characteristic of a disciple. When I think of resilience, I think of Eugene Peterson. Did you know that Dr. Peterson died this week, this past Monday, at the age of 85, born in East Stanford, Washington, raised in Kalispell, Montana. His father was a butcher and a grocer. His mother, believe it or not, was a Pentecostal preacher. When he was 10 years old, he said, I bought a Bible. I purchased a Bible with my own money, and I started reading it mainly because he said I had no friends. And I read the Bible through, and Jesus became my friend. He devoured the book. He dedicated his life to the book. And the day would come 50 years later, I suppose, when he would write in his own words this wonderful paraphrase that's in your office, that's in your study of the New Testament called The Message. He would take translations. He would take the old King James, John 1.14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and he would change it into the modern vernacular and say, and God moved into the neighborhood so that everybody could get it. He was a man of resilience who last Monday entered into the joy of his master. In his book on discipleship that is a must-read called A Long Walk in the Same Direction, there are two quotes 
that I remember better than any. I want to share them with you. Number one, he said, it isn't difficult in such a world as ours to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. However, he said, it is terribly difficult to sustain that interest. It isn't difficult to get a feeling. It is difficult to sustain that passion, resilience. And the second quote is this. I love this, particularly today in light of what's happened this weekend in Pittsburgh. He said, and I quote, I decide every single day to open myself to the frustrations and failures of loving, risking, and daring to believe that failing in love is better than succeeding in pride. Failing in love, erring on the side of love, is better than succeeding in pride. And you know that the truth is, love never fails. Here's a man who took a risk and gambled everything on God. And on Monday, he received his commendation. There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked. He never tried. He never sang or prayed. And when he one day passed away, his insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claimed he never died. When you wager life on God, you don't eliminate risk. You might actually increase it. But I can assure you of this, you'll know you're alive and so will others around you. And the life you live will be abundant and you will enter into the joy of your master and you may even enable others to do the same and you will know it's worth the risk because nothing ventured everything lost in Jesus name Amen